Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President. No president has ever said those words from this podium, and it's about time. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN. Palinville, New York, WLPP. Rochester, New York, WRFZ. New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas, on KPSQ. Seattle, Washington, KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR. Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com, but he and Desi are off getting their second COVID vaccination. So I'm here. Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com, putting on my guest host hat for what I hope will be a great show. There's news to cover. We'll get to that. And we've got a couple of fascinating guests for you today, too. We're going to talk with Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii. And we'll also check in with a lawyer. <laughs> she was Ruth Bader Ginsburg's law clerk and more recently worked with the justice on her final project in the months leading up to Ginsburg's death. We'll speak with Amanda L. Tyler about the book they compiled together called Justice, Justice, Thou Shalt Pursue. But let's start with the news. And we'll start in India, where the health ministry on Thursday reported 379,257 new coronavirus infections. That's just the latest in a continuing series of global single-day records set during this devastating second wave of COVID-19. India also confirmed another 3,645 deaths from the virus, the most it has seen in a single day since the pandemic started. Hospitals have filled up in Delhi and started turning away patients and their family members. Grave diggers and crematorium employees are working around the clock to keep up as the deaths continue. The Biden administration late Wednesday outlined a plan to send India $100 million in aid, including oxygen tanks, N95 masks, raw materials that India needs to produce more than 20 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine, and more. Globally, there have now been more than 150 million reported coronavirus cases in just 
13 months since the pandemic began. Across the U.S., more cities are reopening, like New York City, which is primed to lift all restrictions by July 1st. Still, experts say more people need to get vaccinated in order to maintain safety. And that could be a problem since new polling reveals about a quarter of American adults say they won't even try to get a shot. Please get vaccinated. Well, good news on the economic front. U.S. growth accelerated in the first quarter of 2021 to an annualized rate of 6.4 percent. That's a jump from a 4.3 percent rate the previous quarter. And it brings the nation's GDP almost back to pre-pandemic levels. Economists also predict next quarter's growth could reach 10 percent, soaring, bolstered by increased interest in shopping, traveling and dining out as pandemic restrictions slowly taper off. Economists expected the growth rate for 2021 as a whole to be around 7 percent. That would be the fastest pace in a calendar year since 1984. It's thanks to big federal spending, including President Biden's $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package, which has helped the GDP rebound from the plunge at the start of the pandemic faster than it did after the Great Recession. And then there's this. The Wall Street Journal reporting that the stock market closed out President Biden's first 100 days in office on Thursday with its best start to a presidential term since the days of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The S&P 500 has risen 11 percent since the January 20th inauguration. The index recorded its strongest performance since the start of Roosevelt's first term in 1933, when it surged 80 percent after the 1929 crash. By comparison, the S&P 500 rose 5.3 percent in the first 100 days of Trump's term. The Supreme Court on Thursday ruled in favor of an undocumented Guatemalan immigrant challenging his deportation by immigration authorities. It was a 6-3 decision, get this, written by Justice Neil Gorsuch, backed by an interesting group that included Clarence Thomas, Amy Coney Barrett, plus Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan. Wow. Gorsuch wrote that the Justice Department violated federal law by failing to provide immigrants facing deportation a clear notice to appear, detailing the charges and court date in the case. Well, Florida's Republican-led legislative session wraps up Friday after doing a lot of damage. On Thursday, they jumped on the voter suppression bandwagon, passing new rules on voting that black lawmakers said would make it harder for millions of voters, especially people of color, to cast ballots. The Florida measure echoes what was done in Georgia and is being rammed through other state legislatures, adds rules for voting by mail, and bars anyone from providing food and water to people waiting in line with the excuse that it could influence the people standing in line to vote in a particular way. Wow. But Florida did more damage. Legislation excluding transgender girls and women from playing on female teams in public schools and universities is on the governor's desk. You get the idea. But as bad as many of the bills passed are, the worst of them is House Bill 1. And DeSantis already signed that one into law. In a scathing editorial Friday morning, the Miami Herald wrote, HB1 is an insidious law, anti-democratic and un-American. 
an edict some autocrat might have cooked up. Aimed at clamping down on social justice demonstrations, the bill increases penalties for crimes committed during protests and also allows even peaceful protesters and uninvolved bystanders to be swept up and hauled in by police during protests where violence might occur. It even shields from civil liability anyone who might drive their cars into protesters walking in the street. Thankfully, some civil rights lawyers have already filed a lawsuit challenging that law. The Miami Herald stated, quote, This lawsuit is one of the best things to come out of a mean-spirited legislative session that has resulted in few things to cheer. And while we're on the subject of Florida, things continue to worsen for Florida man Matt Gates. The latest shoe dropped Thursday when the Daily Beast reported the existence of a confession letter written by Gates' friend and cohort, Joel Greenberg. He's the former Seminole County, Florida tax collector who's currently facing a 33-count indictment on charges ranging from stalking to sex trafficking. The letter, which exists in several drafts, asked Roger Stone to help Greenberg secure a pardon from the then-president. Obviously, the pardon never happened, but Greenberg detailed in his letter his relationship with Gates. He admitted that he facilitated Gates' interactions with college students and paying young women for sex on his behalf. And he claimed that he, Gates, and others had sex with a minor they believed to be 19 at the time. She was 17. Congressman Ted Lieu publicly asked Republican leader Kevin McCarthy to remove Gates from the House Judiciary Committee immediately, pointing out that the committee has jurisdiction over the Justice Department that is investigating Gates, including allegedly for sex crimes with a minor, Lieu calling it an untenable conflict of interest. And finally... As we mark the passage of the first 100 days of the Biden administration, number 46 and the first lady paid a visit to number 39, Jimmy Carter and former first lady Rosalind Carter in Plains, Georgia. Biden driving home that he understands that his ability to get legislation passed in the Senate is only possible thanks to the election of Democratic senators John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock in Georgia. And he told reporters there, quote, We owe a special thanks to the people of Georgia. Because of you, the rest of America was able to get help. If you ever wonder if elections make a difference, just remember what you did here in Georgia. You changed America. Indeed, they did. And the Republicans are trying to change it back to where it's harder to vote. But that's a story for another day. We got to take a break and come back on the other side and talk to Senator Maisie Hirono. So stick around. I'm your guest host today, Nicole Sandler, filling in for Brad and Desi on the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever. If you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely, and quickly via bradblog.com slash donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm your guest host today, Nicole Sandler. This past week was a big one. President Biden delivered his first address to a joint session of Congress. 
And for the first time in history, the president turned to the vice president and speaker seated behind him and said the words, Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President. No president has ever said those words from this podium. No president has ever said those words. And it's about time. It was a moment. So today, we'll feature some other amazing American women. First up, I am thrilled to welcome to the show Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii. Senator, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you, Nicole. It's my pleasure. I have to start by saying congratulations because your legislation passed the Senate. It is a a hate crimes bill, basically. Can you tell us what this bill is and why you introduced it as, well, we know, but tell us uh, anyway. We all know that uh, during this pandemic, there's been a tremendous increase in hate crimes targeting Asian American Pacific Islanders. And we've all seen the videos of of people getting beaten up, kicked, slashed, all of that. So this is happening in every state and Washington, D.C., across the country. So I introduced a bill along with Grace Meng of New York, who introduced the the bill on on the House side to combat these kinds of crimes and to gather data uh, across the country to enable people to report these crimes on online because these are very underreported crimes. And so I called this bill a very non-controversial bill, but I could not get a single Republican to sign on it when I first introduced it. Wow. When did, you fir- bill- when did you first introduce it? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Earlier? You know, be, be, oh, I can't even remember. But uh, it was this term, of course. Okay, I gotcha. And so uh, as the bill was brought forth by Chuck Schumer, uh, people began to look at it. And, and of course, we all recognize the rise in hate crimes. And I think even the Republicans uh, must have thought this is not good for our country, certainly not for APIs. But they weren't too crazy about my bill. And I remember a reporter um, asking, saying to me, well, you know, some Republicans are saying that uh, this bill doesn't go far enough. And I just, I just laughed and I said, oh, shut up. If they have something better, I am all ears. But I did begin to hear that uh, Senator Collins had some concerns that I thought I could work through with her. And I did. So it was, uh, it was tremendous to be able to work with her. And then uh, Dick Blumenthal had a really great amendment along with uh, Senator Moran, a Republican. Um, and so we began to, you know, come together in a bipartisan way. Uh, but we still have to contend with some 20 amendments that were filed by the likes of Ted Cruz oh, and Mike boy. Lee and others. Um, but in the end... In the end, they yeah. all voted for it. The yeah. uh, it was ninety four to one. Yeah. The one, uh, jo- Josh Hawley. What's <laughs> what's his problem? Oh, what's with him? <laughs> <laughs> he gave a pretty lame excuse for why, but uh, it was it was really lame. I, I guess he really relishes being in the spotlight as a soul wow. person, but he made it very plain that he does not stand with the API community against these kinds of crimes. It's uh, it's amazing. I, it's not surprising. It's just amazing. Um, yeah. he, he is a, a thing unto himself. So, Senator yeah. Maisie Hirono, you're here today because uh, your your book is out. It's called the it's called Heart of Fire: An Immigrant Daughter's Story, 
and and it's yours is an amazing story and you tell you were actually born in japan um yes. in the town that we've all unfortunately come to know as the nuclear disaster there do you pronounce yeah. it fukushima or fukushima no, Fukushima. Fukushima. Okay. And it's a prefecture, and I was born, uh, I was raised in a little rice farm with my grandparents in the northern part of Fukushima. Okay. Have you been back there? I mean, you left when you were how old? Seven? Uh, almost eight. I've been back there only once uh, since that time, but it's been a long time since I've been back. And of course, uh, we've all, you know, our hearts go out to them as they continue to recover uh, mm. through the disaster that happened. Right. It, and it's it's ongoing. And we don't I don't think we hear enough about it. There was a story just a couple of weeks ago about them still dumping the wastewater from the nuclear power plant into the ocean, which can't be good for the sea life there or for the ocean and the planet in general. Well, there's uh, science behind what they're doing and releasing this wastewater. So I hope that we'll re refer to the science. Uh, and yes, there's a lot of emotion thinking that radioactive matter is going into our oceans. That is definitely not a good thing. Uh, so they are working with the, the uh, IAEF, the, uh, the Nuclear Energy Commission and others to make sure that, that whatever they do, uh, is going to be safe for the environment and for people. But uh, yes, there's a high emotion attached to all of that. And my heart goes out to the people of Fukushima. And I watch uh, uh, Japanese programming, especially on the weekends. And um, they, they do focus on the efforts of all these towns to reopen and for, you know, to, for uh, businesses to come back, all of that. It, it is a huge challenge for them oh yes um uh, so you you didn't spend much time there you were very young when you left you left with your mother who left an abusive husband your father moved to hawaii where where you were raised where you grew up and you became a citizen uh the same year that that hawaii became a state yes and one of my very distinct memories of that statehood is being selected by my elementary school to pin the 50th state you know, 50th star, which I literally cut out of white construction paper that <laughs> I found in the classroom. And we had a assembly and there I am in my rubber slippers and, and pinning this star, which I, it was a distinct moment. Nobody had a camera. Oh no. <laughs> but uh, it is a very distinct memory of that time. Not to mention I became a United States citizen yes. also that year. That's that's amazing. Now, I first got to know of you. We didn't actually meet, but it was 2012. You were a candidate for Senate um, uh -huh. and you appeared at Netroots Nation in uh -huh. Rhode Island. Uh -huh. And you spoke on a, on a, at a luncheon with Elizabeth Warren and Darcy uh -huh. Berner. And that's when I was first introduced to you. Oh. And, and I got to tell you, you know, I was impressed with you then. But you seemed you were very soft spoken and kind of. <laughs> timid and I, we didn't quite know what to make of you and now we look at you almost 10 years later and you're a very outspoken strong tough woman in the senate was this a, a change for you or did i have a misconception of you 10 years ago oh, it was a journey because a lot of uh, people equate uh, being very vocal and aggressive as uh, um, the leadership, but that's not the only way to be. And I, I've always been very determined I, and to get, you know, the legislation, all the things I fought for, but I just didn't have to be so noisy about it. <laughs> I had to be very strategic about mm. it, but didn't have to be so noisy. It is the Trump administration and the bully that he is that really brought my 
vocalization to the fore. (laughs) Because I just thought it was so important to speak up against this bully, this liar. I think I'm the first senator to actually say on national TV that he's a misogynist, a liar, and a sexual predator, and he should just resign. That was in 2017. Right. But I didn't speak out, Nicole, to get attention, but um, it it was important for me to sort of break out of the reserve, uh, the vocalizing reserve that I had as part of my culture, Mm. part of being a woman, part of being Asian uh, in Hawaii, uh, being vocal and aggressive and confrontational are not particularly rewarded, especially when it comes from a woman. Oh, but everybody's okay. changing, and they're kind of used to seeing me be this way. And I think uh, the people of Hawaii, most of them, uh, basically they say, hey, you go, girl. So that's good. <laughs> that's right. And I, I would add that. I would add on to that and say, you go, girl. Because it's nice hearing a strong, we, we need more of you. Um, in every respect, we need more women. We need more women of color. We need more Asian women in the Senate. Um, uh, uh, when you were elected, you were the first, right? Yes, I was the first Asian woman, and there was until uh, Kamala Harris came along, until Tammy Tammy Duckworth came along, thank goodness, uh, Catherine Cortez Nasto. So, yes, we have more women of color in the Senate, but for a long time, I was it. (laughs) But in the House, things are very different, and the House has so many really uh, expressive, articulate women of color and minorities. So that's changing. Right. Thank goodness. Now you served quite a while in the house and that's, you know, how you rose, you had name recognition, obviously in Hawaii to become the Senator there. Um, You were also Lieutenant governor of Hawaii. What, what don't we know about Hawaii that we should know the rest of us here on the mainland? (laughs) I think most people view Hawaii as a wonderful place to visit. And uh, I hope they know that we have the Alahos, Aloha spirit, which means welcome, love, all of that. Those are not just uh, words to us. Uh, But uh, we are part of the country. Mm -hmm. And when people think that, well, it's Hawaii, and they act as though Hawaii is not a state, excuse me, we are a state. And uh, so uh, we are also the most isolated, physically isolated place in the world. And we have our challenges. Things are not all laid back and everything. We have really high unemployment due to Mm. the pandemic, but we have people who cooperate, who want to help each other. Uh, We are not perfect. No place is, but I I can't pick a better place in Hawaii with this cultural diversity uh, to represent. I'm grateful. For Hawaii, well, we all—I'm lucky enough to to have been there a couple of times, and um, you know, and I, yes, and I say very lucky. Um, oh, hold on, I got—I I messed up our picture. Let me fix that now. So, I, yeah, I was lucky enough to be there. Now, what do you say to the people of Washington D.C. who right now are in a fight to become the 51st state? The last one to join the union was Hawaii, and was the year I was born. So, um, this—it's been a while. What, what? How do you feel about D.C. becoming? state oh i very much support dc statehood uh, it is clear that uh, for example they the people of dc pay more in taxes per capita than any other state wow. they have more population than at least two other states so for a number of reasons they, they ought to become a state they are they, they, you know it's taxation without representation and then there's also congressional oversight of the dc that doesn't exist with other with other states so for any number of reasons, they ought to become state. I'm glad that the House did that. 
The Senate is another story. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a challenge in the Senate. And unless we get rid of uh, the, the filibuster, it's going to remain a challenge, I'd say. Yeah, I saw somebody today uh, suggested just making D.C. part of Maryland, which uh, is probably an insult to the people of D.C., number one. Probably, yes. Right. (laughs) I mean, they deserve to be a state. So uh, the filibuster, do you think anything will get done without getting rid of the filibuster or or changing it enough so that they, you know, make it make it painful for the minority party to actually have to talk and make a case and keep the filibuster going rather than just doing it by filing the paperwork to do it? Well, Senate Democrats want to get things done. And yeah, well, we have a pretty diverse caucus and there are some people who are not uh, uh, on the same page as I am to eliminate the filibuster, which is a vestige of, of Jim Crow, uh, in my view, and others. But I think it's going to take uh, Republicans continue to stonewall major legislation. Note that the rescue plan that helps millions of people uh, in our country, not a single Republican thought that their constituents deserve that help. So you got that. You have Mitch McConnell's goal in life is to take back the Senate. So that does not create a good um, space for major legislation such as Joe Biden's infrastructure bill to pass. So I say, uh, you know, in order for us to accomplish the things that we need to for our country, to get our country back to an economic vibrancy and all of that, uh, I don't think that we're going to get there unless we change the filibuster. Mm -hmm. And I would be fine with uh, a talking filibuster. So the Republicans have to actually hold the floor and tell us why they don't support something. Exactly. Um, This is why Mitch McConnell wants us to retain filibuster, because when he was in control, he rarely brought bills to the floor uh, for us, for the Democrats to uh, filibuster on. He would he was very busy getting judges over 200 (laughs) Trump judges for like votes. He was very busy doing that. And then his major accomplishment was the 1.5 trillion in tax cuts for the richest 1% of people in our country and corporations. And he did that through reconciliation. So he didn't need 60 votes. He wants us to retain the filibuster because he knows that the Democrats are going to bring to the floor bills that will help people as opposed to screwing them over. And so he wants the power to veto all those things. Of course. Right. And we have to come to the conclusion that it ain't happening and therefore uh, we need filibuster reform. But apparently we're not there yet. Right. Now, <laughs> is it just do you think just uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema who are ho- the holdouts here or are there others? Is there other um, pushback to getting rid of the filibuster uh, in the Democratic Senate caucus? Oh, they are the two that have been identified right. as being against uh, removal of the filibuster. And if there are others, I don't know who they are. Hmm. Do you talk to them? Do you ever like say something to I, I, it's a good thing I'm not a senator because I'd have a few choice words for the two of them. I'm wondering if you ever do that or if the committee of the Senate takes over and you you don't go there. I like both of them. My I think what's going to happen is for both uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema that as they see the Republicans stymie uh, all of these bills that we act, we need to pass on behalf of the American people, that I, I hope they will conclude that, you know what, um, adhering to this the, this rule, which is not written in the Constitution or in concrete, right. that, that, that is harmful. 
is harmful to people. And therefore, I hope that they too will conclude that we need filibuster reform. I hope so. Um, uh, Senator Hirono, we've only got a couple of minutes left, and I want to go back to the book for a moment, because actually Mother's Day is coming up in a few weeks. Yes. And this this is a, like a love letter to your mother, isn't it? This this. Tell us about Heart of Fire. Where did the title come from? The title comes from Her Heart of Fire and the courageous determination and risk-taking that she, um, she did to bring me to this country and totally change my life. And so with her perseverance, determination, yeah, we were poor at the beginning, you can imagine. So she's just uh, working hard with little pay, no health care, no benefits, no nothing. Uh, she just was a great determination, heart of fire to create a better life for us. So that's one of the life lessons I learned from my watching my mother. One person can make a difference totally changed my life by bringing me to this country Two, half the battle is showing up not just showing up physically but seeing the course emotionally persevering that's mother that's my mother half the battle is showing up she kept showing up and the third is to take risks get out of your comfort zone and she certainly did and those are uh, over the course of my time uh, in politics in particular life lessons that i try to live up to well, awesome. And you are again over the last decade now. We've come to know you as as a fighter and and a, a strong um, advocate for progressive values and moving the country forward. So I want to thank you for your service and and it's oh, been great watching you, you over the years. After seeing you at that Netroots Nation uh, luncheon and then seeing you win your election and moving on, uh, you, we've never met, but I feel like I you know I know you because I was there at the beginning, sort of, kind of. That's great. It's been a journey, and I. And more myself now. I am a, a more complete self because I am very vocal now. I, I exercise my vocal cords more, not yes. just my inner determination and focus. Well, please keep and doing I, that. I, and I hope that message comes through in the book. Most definitely. <laughs> uh, Senator Maisie Hirono, uh, you're on Twitter at Maisie Hirono. Keep speaking out. We love it. I will. And thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to finally meet you. And uh, thank you for the book. I hope everyone reads it. Heart of Fire by Maisie Hirono. And thank you again. Hello, everyone. Senator Maisie Hirono. She won re-election for her second term in the Senate in 2018. So she's up again in 2024. We need to keep her around for a while. Up next on the broadcast... If you were to ask me what American woman who was alive during my lifetime that I would have loved to interview, it would have to be Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Sadly, that's now impossible. But I have the next best thing, sort of, coming up in just moments. So don't go away. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Desi Doyen of the Green News Report and the Bradcast. Did you know we are completely listener-supported and free of corporate and political influence? You can help us stay 100% independent over your public airwaves by signing up for a monthly subscription of any amount you like. Just go to bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. I'm Nicole Sandler, back here, guest hosting this edition of the broadcast. So I mentioned a few minutes ago that of all American women who lived during my lifetime, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the one I would have most wanted to interview. 
Obviously, that's no longer a possibility. But we do have sort of the next best thing. The last project, the final project Justice Ginsburg worked on before her death on September 18th, 2020, was a book titled Justice, Justice, Thou Shalt Pursue, A Life's Work Fighting for a More Perfect Union. It's a collection of some of her lectures, briefs, oral arguments, and Supreme Court opinions that she felt best represented her life's work. Well, our guest today is the person that Justice Ginsburg chose to be her collaborator on this book, and they go way back. She is a law professor at UC Berkeley, and before she went into academia, she actually clerked for Justice, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Amanda, thank you. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So the occasion is the publication of a new book, which happens to be the final project uh, from Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's called Justice, Justice Thou Shalt Pursue, A Life's Work Fighting for a More Perfect Union. And you worked with her on this for, what, the last few months of her life? Yes. So tell us about your relationship with her. I, I mean, I feel like I can call her Ruth because I feel like Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, was everyone's grandmother. She was that person who just did so much good for the nation. You had a close relationship with us. So tell us about your relationship, how you worked with her. I called her the justice. The justice, <laughs> as did all her, her clerks, person. right? They all, Everybody yes. referred to her as the justice. The justice. Um, and I clerked for her in 1999. Uh, I started in 1999, and I clerked for her for a year. Typically, a Supreme Court clerkship is just that. It's a year in length. And it was an experience that changed my life. I mean, I can talk at great length. I'll, 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 I'll respond to your props, prompts but uh, about all that she taught me in that year and in the year since. What has been a really special privilege um, in my life has been able to it has been being able, excuse me, to work with her again 20 years later on this book project and to see it now finally in print um, is just really special. Oh, uh, it's got to be. And the, the book is wonderful. And what it what it what it includes are a, a couple of, well, kind of interviews. The one you did with her that that prompted the story. Why don't you what that prompted this project? Why don't you talk about that and how this came about? Yes. So I invited the justice to come to UC Berkeley to do an event in honor of a woman named Herma Hill Kay. Now, Herma Hill Kay had been her friend for some 50 years by that point and had unfortunately passed away in 2017. The justice, uh, I, 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 I like to say that when I would invite her to do things, I was never confident that I would get a yes. But I knew I would get one with this because I knew she would want to come and honor Herma. The, their connection goes back to the 60s, and in the early 70s, together with a third co-author, they wrote the very first casebook on gender discrimination in the law. So that that's the genesis of the friendship. They were part of really creating this field and launching Justice Ginsburg's advocacy career. And so the justice agreed to come, and she was originally supposed to come in January of 2019, but we had to delay it because... In December of 2018, doctors discovered lung cancer, and she had to have surgery on her left lung. She actually resisted postponing the event because it was so important to her to come and honor Herma. That's how loyal she was. But she did eventually agree, uh, and wisely so, and we postponed and rescheduled right away 
for the fall. So she came in October of 2019. And she said from the outset she didn't want to give prepared remarks. She'd rather have a conversation. And I was only too happy to oblige. And so what we did is we planned going back and forth, talking about, you know, we planned the questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, We didn't get to all of them. I would have loved to have had more time with her. But the conversation covers the arc of her life. It starts with her childhood, and it concludes with her time on the Supreme Court and what work she thinks is left to be done. So we tried to cover quite a lot of ground. And then the book came out of that actually in, in part, in large measure, because of Herma Hill Kay. So we knew that the University of California Press was considering publishing Kay's last work, which was a book about the first American women law professors. Right. And Justice Ginsburg had written the introduction for that, and it was really important to her to see that book published. So we decided that we would offer the press the carrot of creating a book out of our conversation about Justice Ginsburg, but our condition was they had to release the books together. And I'm very happy to say that this spring, both books, our book and Paving the Way by Herma Hill Kay, are releasing alongside one another. Yes, and that's awesome. And and the, uh, the, the her collaborator Patricia and I can't. I'm sorry. I'm 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 not at 100 percent right now. Um, I forget her last name. But Patricia, who Kane. was Kane, is is going to come on this show as well to talk about that book because oh, it sounds fascinating. So we just have to get that's that scheduled. Great. But we're gonna we're gonna do that. Um, so this book. Um, uh, called Justice, Justice Thou Shalt Pursue, contains your conversation, a transcript of it. It also has Ruth Bader Ginsburg's intro or, or, or a tribute to Herma Hill Kay. Is that the, the intro to the book or is that something different? So I wrote an introduction to the book that comes before the tribute to Herma Hill Kay. Right. Um, but a similar version of that tribute is the introduction to Herma's book. Right. That's what I figured. And then you you the, the rest of the book is a collection of the justices, opinions, arguments, interviews and speeches that she personally selected because she said she thought these best captured her legacy. Yes, I think it's fair to say that the book is a compilation of things for which she hoped to be remembered. So we have in there, for example, the very first brief that she ever filed in a gender discrimination suit. The very first case was a case called Moritz. And what's so special about that is, among other things, the brief has never been published before. Mm. It lays out the roadmap for the work that she's going to do in the 1970s. And it was a special case to her because she litigated it with her husband. They did this together and they won the case. And um, the case also was special to her. And she talks about this in our conversation because the law was changed. It was a discriminatory tax law that actually singled out men who had never been married for exclusion from the benefit. Um, They won in the 10th circuit, the appellate court below the Supreme court in arguing that this was Um, an unfair discrimination, an unconstitutional discrimination. The government sought cert or review in the Supreme Court when that happened. But in the meantime, the law was changed. So the Supreme Court never heard the case because there was no reason to. The law had been changed. But the key to to all of this is that the government, in seeking review in that case, listed in its brief, in an appendix, every single statute in the United States Code that distinguished between the genders. And as Justice Ginsburg explains, this is before personal computers. Compiling this with a team of researchers would take a very long time, and the government did it for her. And so she said of uh, of this list, it was a pearl beyond price, 
there it was for us, a roadmap for what we needed to do. And they set to work. So I got to ask, did you meet Marty Ginsburg? Did you get to know him at all? Yes, I clerked for her when Marty was still alive. Mm. And that was a love affair for the ages. It sounds that way. It it was. And you, you, it comes across, I think when she talks about him in the book and I will tell you, as I mentioned, I wrote the introduction to the book, but justice Ginsburg being who she was, she of course wanted to look it over and edit it. And I, and I was only too happy to have her do that because she was a truly great writer. And, um, she just gave amazing feedback. One of the things that she said when she read the draft introduction was that we needed more Marty in it. And I just love that. Um, that very this last summer, she was very much still thinking about Marty and we were very much um, going to include him and celebrate him because he was a huge part of her story. As, as she told many of her clerks, her marriage and her family were the most important things in her life. And as she talks about in the book, he was her biggest booster. He was her biggest supporter. And she never would have accomplished all that she did if she didn't have a true partner in life. Oh, it, it, I get goosebumps thinking about it. And we've seen, thankfully, there's been a number of documentaries about her life. There's been a theatrical film released, um, a Matter of Sex, which was about her life. Uh, and so we, we got to know the story um, even if you maybe have not read a biography of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we know the basics and we and, and the love story between her and Marty certainly comes across. And I'm glad to know it's every bit as romantic as it sounded. Um, so that was her first brief that she worked on with her husband. Then you also have her first oral argument, which obviously is before she was on the Supreme Court. Frontiero versus Richardson and then Weinberger versus Weisenfeld. What was special about those two? She singles those out as her favorite oral arguments of all the ones that she did. I think in part because Frontier was the very first time she appeared before the Supreme Court. And as we discussed, she talked uninterrupted for some 10 or 11 minutes in that case, which is unheard of. And uh, so she talks in our conversation about how she wasn't sure whether the the justices, excuse me, were listening to her. Uh, So she she decides to invoke Sarah Grimke's show-stopping line that all we ask is that men take their feet off of our necks. She had to make sure they were listening and paying attention. Um, and then Weisenfeld, I think that was her favorite case of all the cases hmm. that she handled. It was a case that involved a father who tragically lost his wife in childbirth, and he wanted to stay home with his son until his son went to school. And when he went to apply for Social Security benefits, he was told as a man he didn't qualify. Whereas if the tables had been turned, his wife would have been able to collect benefits. And I think what she loved about this case was that it was emblematic of what she liked to say about gender equality. Uh, She was very common to say that women will never achieve true equality until men share in the familial duties and in raising children, for example. And here was a man, Stephen Weisenfeld, who wanted to do just that. And so um, I think she she felt a special connection to the case that certainly comes across in our conversation in the book. And I think she also loved that it was a case that illustrated very powerfully how laws that are drawn along uh, distinctions about gender don't just hold women back, they also hold men back and they they hold everyone back from being able to chart their own destinies and make their own decisions about what 
they will find fulfillment in, in their lives. Um, I, I, when when you get to the ne- the next section is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Associate Justice, Supreme Court of the United States, and in comes Herma Hill Kay again because uh, okay. you have her prepared statement on the nomination of Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the court. So it shows their their close relationship uh, throughout all those years. The interesting thing, and and I kind of figured this would be the case, the the decisions, the opinions that she publishes, I mean, one is a majority opinion that was in the United States versus Virginia, which had to do with Virginia Military Academy and allowing women in, right? But the other three were all dissents. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was known as the great dissenter. She was known for her dissents. And the, the cases are the Lily Ledbetter case, Shelby County, and, and Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. Those, I mean, people who are now currently paying attention should remember all three of those, um, which are still not, you know, again, she wrote the dissent. So it means they weren't decided the way we would have liked to see them decided. Um, but she's she's proud of these dissents, as are we. Um, but these these cases were special to her. Yes, I, I, I think it's unfortunate that there are so many dissents, but that was her way, I think, of highlighting that there's still a lot of work to be done. She did not like to lose. Nobody likes to lose, no. but she really didn't. And she felt very passionately that those cases had been decided incorrectly. She read her dissents from the bench, as you'll see, you know, and we have there in the book, her statements. That's not a common thing to read a dissent from the bench. But she said um, in the Shelby County dissent, which could not be more timely today, in fact, that she thought the majority was erring egregiously, not just erring, but erring egregiously. So that's a case. Sorry, uh, go on. No, I was going to say. So Shelby County is the is the case that did away with the protections under um, the Voting Rights Act, the preclearance. Uh, requirement. So, for instance, a state like Georgia, because they've had, pro- and, and you sh- I should let you explain it. You're the lawyer. I'm the novice. <laughs> why, why don't you tell us what Shelby County did? Yes. Well, Georgia is a jurisdiction that was covered under the Voting Rights Act of 1965's preclearance requirements. Right. And what that meant was under sections four and five of the act, because of its past history of um, racial discrimination in voting, the state had to pre-clear, that is to say, get authorization before any changes to its its voting laws went into effect from either the Department of Justice or a special panel of federal judges. That's all gone after Shelby County in 2013, when the court five to four strikes down the pre-clearance provisions as exceeding Congress's authority under the 15th Amendment. And Justice Ginsburg writes a dissent that, uh, you know, you mentioned that, that she's known as the great dissenter. It's actually uh, a, another justice. Harlan is known as the great dissenter, oh. but I think in time, I and I've written this, I think in time, justice Ginsburg will be enjoying that same famous label and primarily for that dissent, because I think what we're seeing play out is underscoring just how important the continuing enforcement of all aspects of the voting rights act is and and in other words just how right she was in her dissent right and what happened yesterday is just astounding i know there have been legal challenges already filed do you think that this is going to hold up in court what they're doing 
Well, the difference is now they'll be challenging the provisions outright Mm. as violating the Voting Rights Act, whereas before they never could have gone into effect until receiving authorization from, as I said, a a panel of judges or the Department of Justice. But now we've jettisoned that framework, and so everything is going to play out in court, and it will depend on what the Supreme Court thinks about the underlying merits of of what we have and whether uh, the law that's been enacted has uh, will have the effect of discriminating based on on race and making it harder for minority voters to vote. And, you know, there there are a lot of indications that that's going to be the case. We'll see what the courts do. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if this wound up ultimately in front of the Supreme Court. Right. And 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 there there lies the rub, as they say, the Supreme Court today is a 6-3 conservative majority. Um, Shouldn't be this way on so many levels. First of all, uh, Barack Obama should have been able to, uh, you know, nominate Merrick Garland, who should have had a hearing and should have been confirmed. Um, We saw the the Republicans hold that up for almost a year and say no after Justice Scalia died. Sorry, it's an election year. Uh, We we can't, you know, we have to let the people decide. And and that gave us um, uh, was it Brett Kavanaugh who uh, who came first or Neil was, Gorsuch. Uh, was Gorsuch Neil Gorsuch right then um, uh, Kennedy retires I'm I believe under questionable circumstances we still don't know the story and then we got Brett Kavanaugh which was sort of an abomination of a hearing then Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies and I got to tell you I still remember the moment we were eating dinner. And the TV, we always have the news playing in the background. And they came on with the bulletin. And the minute I heard her name, I just knew. And they said, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died. And I just, I dropped my fork. And I'm just like, oh, no. On so many levels, it was devastating. First of all, we lost one of the great Americans in history. One of my idols. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the, the protectors of everything that's good. Um, we lost her. And then it was, oh, my God, Donald Trump is going to fill that seat, even though it was just, you know, weeks away from the election. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that her family said her last wish was that they, you know, let the winner of the election choose her her successor. And that's not what happened. Um, I know you can't speak for her, but what would she have thought? And then to add insult to injury, they put in Amy Coney Barrett in her seat. I'm just apoplectic over it. I'm still angry, as you can probably tell. I can't even imagine what she would have thought and what her family feels. You're right. I can't speak for her and I can't speak for her family. What I can say is that she was fighting really hard to stay with us. And I had the privilege of knowing her for a long time. And she had cancer for the first time the year I clerked for her. Mm. And what I saw was nothing short of heroic then. And I saw the same determination and grit and desire to keep serving as recently as last summer. So it is, uh, it is very, very unfortunate that she was not able to hold on and to have a proper retirement where she could be celebrated and she could relax. She was working right up until the end. She was serving right up until the end. And maybe that's fitting because it was central to who she was serving and, and fighting for the things she believed in. 
but I do really wish that she'd been able to have a proper retirement and been able to be, particularly in the moment when she did pass, be fully celebrated and not have that moment mired in so many political aspects. And, and so, you know, I will say one of the things that I hope this book does with its release this spring is to sort of relaunch that celebration of her life and her legacy and, and particularly as she, as she laid it out. And, and as I said, I think the choice of including dissents and the choice of all, all the content was really for her to highlight the work that she hopes will continue even after her death. Um, I, I, and I'll, I'll let this go after this. I live in the land of woulda, shoulda, coulda. I mean, I, I, I think of how you know, all the things I did wrong that I sh- would have done differently if I had the knowledge that I have now. Um, should she have retired on her own before Donald Trump got elected? That's hard to say. It's it's hard to predict, I think, um, how an election is going to go. We've had yeah. two very close elections the last two. What I can say is what she said at the time, she was full steam. Mm-hmm. She loved her job. She really loved being a public servant. She loved, in particular, being a judge. She told all of her clerks that. And she um, took, you know, great fulfillment from using her talents to try and better our society. And that's someone, you know, when you're built that way, it's hard to walk away. And I think she felt like she was still at full steam. She said this. She still took great joy in the job. She really hit her stride in terms of the power and, and, and um you know, sort of volume of her voice in those those dissents that we see in, in the later years of her tenure. So I think it would have been really hard to walk yeah. away. Yeah, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Yes, exactly. Well, yes, it is. Um, yeah, there, there's just it. You know, I'm glad we had her for so long. I hate that it ended the way it did. Um, and so let's get to the ending of the book because it ends with an afterword that you wrote in October of 2020. And the first line of it, you wrote, this part of the book was not supposed to exist. And so this is a part that she couldn't edit of what you wrote because you wrote it after she died. So um, how do you sum up the life of somebody like Ruth Bader Ginsburg? You know, I, I borrowed a phrase from Justice Sotomayor to do that. Justice Sotomayor said it better than I could. She said that Justice Ginsburg was an American hero. And I certainly agree. Um, she she was something really special. Um, I I think she's one of, and I think you've said this earlier, one of the greatest Americans ever to have lived. I agree. Hers was a life of service. Hers was a life in which you can say she left the world better than she found it. And so so many of us, all of us, really are the beneficiaries of her dedication and her determination to contribute. Go ahead. No, you go. Go. I was going to say that it was really hard to write that. It was I I don't know if it comes across, but it was an incredibly emotional thing to try and write an afterward, knowing even just, you know, the little thing, as you said, that she wouldn't edit it. Um, She would not have liked to have something coming out that she didn't mark up. (laughs) Um, And I could have I'm sure I could have used her editing skills because she was a phenomenal writer. But it was just really hard to do that in the immediate wake of her passing and to try and, as you say, summarize who she was and what she meant to me, but more importantly, what she meant to the country. 
and to do so at a time that was mired in a lot of um, a lot of politics and a lot of a lot of people having a lot of concerns about the continuing relevance and resonance of her legacy. So against all of that, though, I tried to write a hopeful afterward, and I borrowed words of hers, borrowed from Dr. King, about how the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends towards yeah. justice. And I think she really believed that. And one of the things that we hoped for the book was that it would inspire people to pick up the mantle and keep that work going. And the title of the book, Justice, Justice, Thou Shalt Pursue, is something uh, that hangs, that hung in her chambers? Tell us about where that comes from. Yeah, so it's a beautiful phrase that's from Deuteronomy. Hmm. And she had a piece of artwork that hung on the wall of her chambers with the phrase, Justice, Justice, Thou Shalt Pursue. And so when we were thinking about titles, I I kept coming back to that because... (laughs) I've always associated that with her. That's who she was. She was all about pursuing justice, whether as an advocate or as a judge. It it was sort of the overarching principle that animated everything that she did. And so it seemed only fitting to put it in the title alongside a reference to her life's work, fighting for a more perfect union. And in, in the book, you see this constant theme of this more perfect union it is a phrase that is in the preamble to the Constitution, that we, we are constituting ourselves in order to build a more perfect union. And as she was very common to say, that work is ongoing. And even in the last piece of the book, before you get to the afterward, there is an absolutely beautiful speech that she gives at a naturalization ceremony. Mm. And she talks about the promise of America. She talks about how special it is that the child of an immigrant could sit on the Supreme Court. And then she calls on all the newest citizens to join her in working for that more perfect union. And that, too, is something that I think pervaded all that she did and all that she was. And so that, too, had a, had a spot for, uh, you know, we wanted to put that in the title as well. Right. Yeah, that's what I, I neglected to go through. After the decisions, the opinions that you published, uh, there were three speeches at the end. First was lessons learned from Louis D. Brandeis, then remarks at the Genesis Foundation Lifetime Achievement Award Ceremony, and finally remarks at a naturalization ceremony. And then uh, it's your afterward. Uh, it's a beautiful book, and it's a wonderful tribute to an amazing woman. So thank you for, for doing this with her. Um uh, it's it's a great gift to us. I have an advance, a galley of it. So mine is not the completed copy. And I understand in the in the final edition, there are a lot of photos, too. So I'll have to go and check that one out because I don't have the pictures in here. We need to make sure you get, get a proper book because the images are so special. And there, too, I did. I confess I added a few things after her passing. And there's one picture in particular that I just love and I think she would have loved. It's a picture of a little girl who came to pay respects when the justice was lying in repose. And the little girl is in a Supergirl outfit oh. and she's saluting the justice. Oh my. And that just to me, that's what this is all about. It's about preserving the justice's legacy and making sure that future generations know about it and are inspired by it. Amanda L. Tyler, who collaborated with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on her final project, a book called Justice, Justice Thou Shalt Pursue. 
And with that, we reach the end of another edition of the broadcast. Here's hoping Brad and Desi have no side effects from their second shot of the coronavirus vaccine and that they will be back in time for the next episode of the broadcast. In the meantime, I'm Nicole Sandler, inviting you to come on over to NicoleSandler.com and check out all that I have to offer there. There's no paywall, so peruse and listen and read and enjoy. Until next time, I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today, summoning the wise words of Brad Friedman and wishing us all good luck, world. <laughs>